and yet that didn't happen. So people are questioning, well, what was going on? Did Russia need those comm channels open? When a new piece of technology comes in, warfare is one of the first things that it transforms. An onslaught of cyber warfare attacks involving AI and supercomputing really going full bore. To what extent can you impede your adversary? From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Shaheen. Good to be with you again. Very hot topic today. Yeah, in our troubled days. So this is a special edition of our podcast addressing a major, major topic, the state of advanced cyber warfare at the geopolitical level that draws upon big AI powered by advanced computing and its potential role in the war in Ukraine. We have a special guest today is Richard Steenan. He is a cybersecurity industry analyst. He's author of the Security Yearbook 2021. He is formerly of Gartner's IT security research practice and a Forbes columnist. Richard, thanks for taking time out to speak with us today. Oh, it's great to be here, Doug. Okay, so let's start by in today's version of warfare, how an offensive war starts. We watched history progress over centuries. When a battle ensued, first your archers would shoot at the opposing troops to try and lessen and weaken the opponent before you attacked. And then, of course, World War I, it was all about shelling the lines that you were going to send your troops into. So it really felt like what should happen with cyber attacks is that before engaging in something like we have in Ukraine, Russia would have tried to disable the power grid and certainly communications, command and control, GPS, all the things that a military needs in order to mount a defense. And yet that didn't happen. So people are questioning, well, what was going on? Did Russia need those comm channels open? Mm -hmm. Did they plan that this was going to be a, just a show of force and Ukraine would lay down their guns and they needed to be able to keep the communication channels wide open for their occupation. So a lot of cybersecurity people are scratching their head going, why didn't they? And there's probably a couple of other explanations. Mm. One of them being they were afraid of reprisals. Okay. When a new piece of technology comes in, warfare is one of the first things that it transforms. Yep. Mm. We have had examples of cyber attacks here and there, but we've never really seen a full-scale or even a semi-full-scale cyber warfare, have we? We have not. And there's a strong question within academia if, if it makes sense, if it's possible, right? Because you can't, for instance, win something with a cyber war. So it's a little bit like air war. Air wars are criticized because you can't win a war just with air power. You always have to send in troops in order to sew up the battles. Mm -hmm. And certainly cyber war is the same thing, right? So for, for Russia to take down our grid and for us to take down their grid, what would that do, right? The only direction is to escalate. And we don't mm. necessarily want escalation between Russia and the United States ever. So the lack of an opening cyber attack on Ukraine by Russia, it's a really interesting question. I've heard several commentators today, today being Sunday, watching the uh, Sunday morning shows, they also commented surprising lack 
of a cyber attack on Ukraine. Yep. Is it possible Ukraine actually has good cyber defenses in place? They certainly do because the best way, the best education you can give any organization to actually do the things that CISA is saying you should do. And, and I've been saying for 25 years, you know, patch your systems, configure them properly, deploy the right technology. And then 20 years later, people still succumb to ransomware, which is not that difficult to defend against. Mm. But the one thing that companies and CEOs listen to is when they're breached and attacked and have to deal with the pain and agony of recovering, then they invest in security. It's always after the fact. <laughs> well, yeah. Ukraine's been under constant attack for years now, right? The 2015, mm. their power grid was shut down, shut down again in 2016. Not pet yet, a couple of years later, just practically destroyed the country's computing power. So they've been beefing up their security for years. Well, that's a point, Shaheen, you've made that about showing your hand. Yeah, because as soon as you do a cyber attack, you point out where the vulnerability is. And now the other guy can go and fortify it and prevent you from having that. Absolutely. So these cyber vulnerabilities are almost like a one-time use kinds of things. Whereas you could bomb the same place 10 times, you can't really do that with cyber attacks. Yep, totally. And I'm convinced that the U.S. has tremendous cyber capabilities to the point of having eyes on all of Russian intelligence and Russian military cyber operations. So they're watching the keystrokes as their cyber units engage in attacks. And they can't reveal that they know that. They can't even warn the targets to worry about it because that would you know, tell them, hey, you better beef up your security. You've got a mole inside your system. Mm. And that could be a reason that they didn't engage in cyber attacks because they couldn't. Well, I think what they have done is, like you said, that they have publicly disclosed what they know. Yeah. And that simultaneously takes out some of the options yep. of your adversary and sends a signal that... We know these things. We're not going to tell you how we know them, but we know them. Yep. So you have an exposure, but we're not going to tip our hands on where that exposure is. Yep. This is such a key question, Richard. What's your view of the West cyber warfare capabilities, offensive and defensive, compared with the Russians, as far as we know, and particularly the U.S.? Yeah. So we've got great examples on both, much fewer on the side of the U.S. So U.S., we can credit with Stuxnet. Very sophisticated, highly targeted, just the sole purpose to take out and slow down Iran's ability to refine uranium. And it worked, set them back at least two years. But from Russia's side, we've seen them take out a power grid in Ukraine. We've seen them spread a nasty, nasty worm. It was the biggest, uh, most damaging cyber attack of all time called NotPetya. And then we saw last year the solar winds attack, which was very sophisticated. They had to mm. penetrate a tech company, change its code, get it to upload it and file it and package it, sign it, and then send it to their 18,000 customers. That is super sophisticated supply chain attack. So we know they're capable. And you have to compare that to the U.S. And hey, the, the one attack software that's been accredited to the equation group in the US is called Flame. And that used a Microsoft update in order to attack its targets. Very pinpointed, only a few targets ever saw it. But in order to do that, they had to create a MD5 hash collision, which is an extremely expensive operation. It's like Bitcoin mining, almost the exact same thing as Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. And that would have taken lots of computer power 
probably high-performance computing computing power in order to accomplish quickly. That's a good segue into HPC and cybersecurity. Yeah. Doug, I remember an article you wrote when Cray and Deloitte in 2016 installed a system for cyber data analytics, and this was for DoD cyber reconnaissance, and the stats on the system were just really impressive, even now. 22 terabyte real memory, 35 terabytes of local SSD, so clearly memory access times were pretty paramount. And that made sense because part of the software stack, in addition to the usual Hadoop and Spark, also included the Cray Graph Engine. So Graph Analytics, of course, relies on pointer chasing and benefits from being in memory. Okay. This was all for analysis of threat vectors, and they were looking at, this is what you had in your article, quote, specific flows, network locations, times, and events. So really just figuring out what's going on and what is related to what is a highly computationally intensive task. Yeah, and that was six years ago. So things move very quickly in our in our world technologically. Yeah, probably by that kind of analysis, you know, as a service off of IBM Watson or something today. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, when you ask me about cyber warfare and high performance computing, most of the examples I see of attacks of any sort are very, very low bandwidth. The high performance is the attacker himself or herself sitting at a keyboard. Mm. But because the defender has the huge surface area they have to defend, the attacker only has to find one entry point. The defender is required to use more and more intelligent computing to do just what you're describing. So they look at all of it. And if you look at uh, CrowdStrike, they pretty much now took over the endpoint protection space because they have a cloud-based service that accumulates all the data from all the endpoints. They can analyze it all for millions and millions of users and determine what's abnormal and then figure out that you should do something about it. Right. So I see that across the board in the defensive side. You know, how do we handle billions of events and figure out what's what's changed and what we should worry about? On the attacking side, I am extremely concerned about the application of that level of computing to the attacker so that an attacker's actions not only can be automated, but you can go through a complete decision tree and decide the vulnerability you're going to go after once you discover it, exploit it, get on a system, uh, traverse across the network, get to your goal, grab the data you want and exfiltrate it in seconds instead of the days that a sophisticated attack takes. King, off of your comment, Richard, about analyzing it all. Yep. We started out with deep packet inspection on the networking side. Mm -hmm. We were trying to look at every packet and every bit in that packet, and that was already a highly computationally intensive task, and it led to highly parallel systems that would implement that algorithm well. Yep, custom chips to do that. Custom chip, exactly, yes. Yeah. And I think over time, they managed to parallelize and make it less and less custom, but it's still in a highly parallel way. And then over time, we've seen AI come into play, where initially we went from deep packet inspection to what I called wide packet inspection, when you looked at right. patterns across thousands of packets. And then you really didn't need to know what's inside, but you right. could tell whether it doesn't fit the norm. Then you could do anomaly detection. And now with AI, you can do both sides of this. You can analyze things that are coming in, but you can also analyze potential vulnerabilities on the other side and go through many, many permutations to figure out where that might be. Yeah, and somehow people are applying that to encrypted flows. Um, so because most traffic's SSL now, so you either have to slow it down to decrypt it 
or apply some sort of learning algorithm to the encrypted traffic as well. That's right. If you do AI, you don't even have to decrypt it. You can just look at the patterns. Yep. Yep. Richard, you were saying like air warfare, you can't win a war by cyber alone. But to what extent, if you really unleash an onslaught of cyber warfare attacks involving AI and supercomputing, really going full bore, to what extent can you impede your adversary? Almost 100%. Because if the adversary is not computerized, you've got less chance. So if you're fighting in the jungles somewhere, not as big a, an impact. But if they're using ships and airplanes and tanks and precision guided missiles, you can shut them all down. Just turn them off. They won't work anymore. And we've had that issue since we put the first computer board in an M1A1 Abrams tank. You know, it was a supply chain issue and supposedly Chinese chips were being put in there, the famous Manchurian chip case, where in a battlefield, uh, locally, they could connect via Wi-Fi and throttle the engines down. And that's exactly what would happen. And uh, I predict that in one, uh, the book I wrote uh, most recently on There Will Be Cyber War, I predict it'll be a battle. And I said it in the Taiwan Straits. Obviously, it could be in the South China Sea. And you mess with the GPS so the tankers can't find the fighter jets. You shut down the systems on the aircraft carriers and their carrier group. And you could just completely win a battle. Not necessarily a war, but you could definitely get the upper hand on a battle with cyber means. So I find this really interesting because now we're using cyber warfare not just to know what the other guy knows or for us to know better, but to mislead the people and the devices. So yep. one thing we haven't talked about is deep fakes, but then along those lines, it's the same math is to just supply the wrong info right. that a device is relying on. And this is why planes drop off the sky because the sensor doesn't work. Right. And it tells you you're at this height when you're not at that height. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'm seeing some examples of fakes on social media, but it's kind of elementary deep fake. I haven't got anything that is really sophisticated. Should we expect that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's scary, but you can imagine the types of propaganda that a nation like Russia could do. You know, they could generate a video of the president of Ukraine doing something abhorrent. I and mean, they could spread that. You know, nobody would believe it except right. the consumers in Russia might believe it because it's really hard to, to judge if something's real or not. What I'm also observing is that when you play head games, a little bit can go a long way. Yeah. Yep. If you just move the needle by like 1% or 2%, yep. you can change the outcome of things. Yeah, completely. So by the time people realize it's a deep fake or the guys who did get anywhere, it, the damage is done, isn't it? Yeah. Deep fake, I think, is much more powerful than what we have today. But yet we've seen in years past um, how bank runs are generated, where you take some news article or actually somebody hacked a newspaper, changed a headline so it looked like a bank was in trouble and the CEO was arrested or something, and then posted images of people lined up at ATMs for that bank. Even though the images were from a different country in a different time, they post them as if this is happening right now on social media. And that everybody just runs to their ATM, whether it's a holiday weekend or not, to take their money out. And meanwhile, whoever did it sold the stock short on that bank. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, it's the, it's the spookiest and most shrouded form of espionage and sabotage, really, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and admittedly, Russia's the master of it. They've been practicing this for 
70 years because the current Russia does have some handover from the old Soviet Union because the leaders and the oligarchs and Putin in particular mm-hmm. were insiders in the old regime. So they're just continuing those methods that they learned at school. Yeah. Well, I think what's new is the digitization of it. Right. Because the idea of lying or misleading or pamphlet drop from planes, yep. that's not new. Nope. But the way they've managed to manifest it is very new. Yeah, yeah. Yep. One thought I had is, is cyber war a form of war that's likely to spin up into full-on cyber warfare pretty quickly? Just because it's so unaccountable. You don't know who the hell's attacking you. You don't know if your adversary is lying about an attack that's happening. Yeah. You don't really know anything. Right. And there could be lots of false flags. Mm-hmm. Russia could attack somebody that's friendly to them and say it was the U.S. And then what do you do? Exactly. Or China could attack Russia and say it was the U.S. doing it. You know, just so much room for misinterpretation. Kind of related to that a little bit orthogonally, but I did hear Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, today say that the U.S. has done a good job so far of being very truthful and accurate with their shared intelligence. And the idea is to maintain our credibility, at least as far as this war goes. And her strong recommendation was stay away from propaganda for the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we haven't talked about metaverse But this whole thing reminds me of an episode of Star Trek where, if I remember that correctly, where they actually did not conduct the war. They would just simulate it and figure out who was going to (laughs) win. And they would just hand over the winning thing. Okay, I'm in favor of that. Let's go with that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Richard, thanks so much for your time. Really fascinating. If we could possibly, could we check back in with you as this thing unfolds? Yeah, of course. You know, let's do this again as soon as we see some stronger actions being taken both ways. Well, thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC Podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.